Hello, and welcome to The Real Writing Process. I'm your host, Tom Pepperdine, and this week my guest is crime thriller author L.D. Smithson. L.D. Smithson is a psychologist who started her writing career writing the Dr. Bloom crime series under the name Leona Deacon, but her latest book is a standalone, and so a new name was born. Also, it's a different publisher, and that's how marketing works, but don't worry, we cover it in the interview. The key thing to know is that she's a talented writer and her latest book, The Escape Room, is out this week. And I will say it's not hyperbole to call it one of the best thrillers I've read. My wife read it in one day after I raved about it and now she's ordered everything Leona has written because she's become a bit obsessed. But in a healthy way? I'm not too concerned. Yet. Anyway, Leona's fantastic, clearly knows her shit, Gave me some validation off air too, so her psychologist skills are top-notch as well. And I think if you write thrillers, want to write thrillers, or just enjoy thrillers, then you'll get a lot out of this interview. So shall I stop the intro waffle and just get to the interview? Yeah, let's jingle. And this week I'm here with L.D. Smithson. Leona, hello. Hello, lovely to be here. Thank you for being here. And my first question, as always, what are we drinking? Well, I am drinking what I like to call a capu latte today. My my youngest sister owns a lovely independent cafe and she's a properly trained barista and she makes amazing cappuccinos. And then I try and replicate them at home. Okay. Always a bit of a cross between the two. So that's what I'm drinking today, my capu latte. My own invention. Yeah, no, no. It's very, very frothy and very creamy. I like it. So I, I, I'm I, joining you. I, I'm usually black coffee all the way because I'm lactose oh, right. intolerant. But I have I oat milk. I am sorry. No, no. I have oat milk and oat milk frothies beautifully. You can get barista versions now. It's it's very good. Lovely. Mm. Oh, there we go. Um, and where I'm speaking to you now, is this your writing room? Is this the, the corner of the house that you write in? It is really. This is our kind of home office. We mm-hmm. we bought a new home together, myself and my husband, a few years ago and um, renovated it, knocked down all the walls, made it lovely and open plan so that we could spend as much time as possible with our three children. Immediately regretted that decision. <laughs> so we had our first weekend with all the children. Um, but yeah, so it doesn't really have a door on it. You can kind of see yep. straight away through to the rest of the house. So it's quite open, but it is like a little corner that you can get mm-hmm. to privacy. So I can go here and people will leave me be. Nice. It. <laughs> okay. And do you have set hours when you're sort of slightly... Yes. And I also work as a, a business psychologist. So my writing tends to fit about half of my time and the other half is working as a freelance consultant. Mm-hmm. So I write when I can would be the real answer. So I love to have full days where I can spend the whole day writing. That's really lovely. But sometimes that's a luxury. Yeah. Um, I also write a lot on trains when I'm going to and from my work as a psychologist. I just put my headphones in and I like to walk to a local cafe sometimes and write there. So I don't really mind where I am, but it's when I'm in the house on my own and this space is quiet. Yes. That's luxurious. I was going to say with three kids, I guess the noise of a cafe and having noise. Do you find you write better when it's silence or when you have like white noise background? I find it better when I have a playlist on. So when I'm writing a book, I will have a playlist for that book. Nice. Which is music that I find gets me in the right frame of mind for whatever the story is. And it's quite a long playlist, so it isn't too repetitive. But those songs just get me into the right frame of mind. Yeah. I've always 
written like that. I think because I used to write on trains a lot when mm. I first started, and obviously that just, you can't help but listen to a train conversation because yeah. they're fascinating. So. <laughs> yeah. And uh, do you find it better with movie soundtrack and like classical, like instrumental music uh, that's evocative of the emotion of the scene? Or is it more classic pop tracks that might represent the characters? Yeah, well, I'm a bit of an indie queen. So okay. I'm like a bit of a kind of Radiohead, REM nice. kind of yeah. fan back in the day. And so I always have my indie playlists are my favorites. Mm -hmm. um, but I can't have songs I love too much on there, I find. Because yeah. if come on that I really I stop writing and I listen to the song yeah so new music is quite good for me because it kind of just plays in the background I don't know it it isn't distracting and then it just becomes part of the writing process yeah. so I'll often go and find an indie playlist okay. of new tunes yeah. uh, and use that kind of thing so nice uh, and you don't accidentally find yourself writing the lyrics into your <laughs> Don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> now I feel like I need to go oh, back no. and check on my books. <laughs> yeah, just check your editors. It's like, oh wait, no, hold on. There's a whole paragraph that's the <laughs> chorus. Uh, and we should talk about your latest book, The Escape Room, which I absolutely loved, cool. and my wife is obsessed with. Okay, my goodness, cool. it's like because occasionally there'll be a book she she really likes crime. And she read it in less than 24 hours. She was up until midnight finishing it. Oh, wow. And then, bless her, and shows the true love that we have. She let me sleep. But as soon as I woke up in the morning, it's like, we're discussing this book. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, that's wonderful. Yes. So it's a little departure because you also write under Leona Deakin with the, the Dr. Bloom series of crime thriller sort of novels. So in general terms, I'm interested with all writers how you you start a story, whether it's you know a character or a scenario or you know just a, an event. What was it that made you depart from the Doctor Bloom books to write the Escape Room? Was this something that had been percolating for a while, or was there something that just you know inspiration struck? You know, how did it come about? Yeah, it actually came about really through conversations. I had a new editor mm -hmm. um, in my publishers, and he's fab, and I really enjoyed working with him. That my previous editor was amazing, but he's just a bit different and he's a bit more in the story ideas with me. And we talked about different ideas for the next story in the Dr. Bloom series. And then he just asked me if I had any other ideas and we talked through some ideas there. And then we both just got kind of carried away talking about this reality TV culture. And I think Squid Games had just come out and things like that. And we started sharing podcasts or TV shows. And then it just kind of went off on a journey. And then at some point, I can't remember whether it was him or me, but we thought we should write a story about this mm. because this is... This is the thing that we are talking most about. Yes. And so it kind of evolves from there. So it wasn't like a story idea that popped in my head that I thought I want to write that. Or it wasn't even a, oh, I'm bored of the series, mm. I want to move on. It was kind of a bit more organic. Yeah. Maybe. And that it was just about kind of observing what was going on in culture and how that was fascinating me. Mm. Is that how you generally start your stories? Is that you look at a thing in society or that you want to discuss in a story or there's a scenario that you think, oh, that'd be a, a good crime to solve. Or is there a character that you want to feature? How, how does the story generally develop? Yeah, I suppose it's quite similar now. You've asked that question. When I did my first novel, my first Dr. Bloom novel, Gone, that was uh, around a 14-year-old psychopath. Mm. And that was inspired by a book, which is by M.E. Thomas, which is called Diary of a Sociopath. So she is a real life lawyer living in America who has been diagnosed with sociopathy or um, antisocial personality disorder, really. And she wrote about her experiences and how she sees the world. And I just thought it was absolutely fascinating. 
And I thought, what if there was a child in school, a teenager who felt different, like so many teenagers do? Their difference was this very extreme difference that's really quite dark, mm. but also quite judged and prejudiced against by the world. And so she kind of inspired that story. And then Dr. Bloom is my psychologist who works with this individual. And then there's a whole load of mysterious crimes going on in the background, people disappearing and kind of leaving strange messages behind. And so that becomes something that Dr. Bloom's embroiled in while working with this young girl. So yeah, they, I suppose they are inspired by things I'm reading or seeing in the real world. And then I'm trying to come up with my own version of that. Yeah. No, that's really cool. And the book that you're working on the moment, mm. is it too spoilerific to say what inspired what you're working on? No, it isn't. So the book I'm working on at the moment is all about shame and being shamed. So it's essentially about a, a group of friends where somebody's found out some things they've done in the past that they would be ashamed if they came out. And then it's how far they'll go to protect themselves from that truth coming out. And again, that's that whole what we see on social media where, you know, when people get called out for having done something embarrassing or foolish. And the idea that actually we're all human and we can all make mistakes and we probably all have something in our past we'd rather others didn't know. But what if that was exposed? Yeah. And how would that like shatter our lives or our self-identity? It's actually something I discuss a lot with people because the extent of cancel culture, and there's a understandable end, but it's also at what point do you reject the possibility of redemption? Yeah, absolutely. And it's really healthy. I think that's where we kind of evolve and grow. And it's like two forward, one step back sometimes, but we're all really moving forward. And I think one of the things that influences some of my stories is as a psychologist, I have this really fundamental belief that people are born with a blank sheet in terms of good and bad. So even if you are born with a psychopathic brain, which we know is wired up a little bit differently and you don't experience emotions quite as keenly and you're not as scared and and you're not as empathetic, but you can be intelligent and still make good choices if you're educated right and you have a good family background. And so I think there's always that chance for that opportunity to be the best of yourself and the best person. And then that opportunity to put it right if you got it wrong. Yeah. I know some people would see me as being a bit naive there, but I just like that idea of human nature. I think I'm just an optimist when it comes to you. optimism is something i think we need more of in the world right now yeah, yes <laughs> i definitely think environment helps um and it's amazing how people with the same diagnosis but mm -hmm. different cultural background or nurture you know the level of nurturing they've had how they can develop their personalities and it can manifest in very different ways and there's a mindset to it, isn't there? If you see, so if you have kind of attention deficit disorder, for instance, you might see that as a, something that holds you back, or you could choose to see that as your superpower because you're going to be better in a crisis and better when there's lots of variety and multiple demands going on than somebody who's kind of very steady away and, and likes structure and whose brain works in a very linear way. So I think it's embracing that difference, isn't it? That we're all different. So learn how that helps you and learn how that can be of, to your advantage and lean into that, lean for it a little bit. And I think in the world of kind of physical disability, you see those examples quite strongly now, don't you? Where you get the Paralympians, many of them will say that their parents influence them hugely by kind of saying, well, you're just as valid, you're just different. So go out there and they'll be the best version of you. And I think mental health wise, that's coming. Yes, quite there but hopefully that's coming yeah. that idea of okay so you're different yeah 
everybody's different. (laughs) So how can you use it? How can it help you? Yeah. And moving a bit more, going back into your writing and the development of your story. So at the moment, you're sort of focusing on shame and where you've dealt with uh, sociopathy in the past. How do you start mapping that out into a story? Do you then find a core character to represent it and you start developing who they are as a person, who they associate with, what their background is? Or do you go more into the plot of, okay, these are the events that I want to unfold in this book? Yeah, so I'm very much, um, I like to call it a gardener, Mm. where I got a character, an interesting character, my 14-year-old psychopath, let's say, or um, my TV reality Mm. show contestant who didn't really want to be on the TV show. And then I put them in a situation and then I kind of ask them, what are you going to do now? And if I have made their character real enough in my own head, if I can kind of understand where they're coming from personality-wise and background-wise, then that process becomes quite easy. And sometimes they do things that I wouldn't expect or I wouldn't do, and that gives me a bit of a headache for a few (laughs) days to work out what on earth do I do with this now. And then what's quite interesting is that's how I wrote the series, the Dr. Bloom series, very organically, starting out with almost a scenario, Mm -hmm. maybe the first few chapters, and then seeing where the book went. Really enjoyed writing like that, loved it. And then when my new editor came in, he was like, oh, I kind of want to know a bit more about where you're going to take the story. We worked on mapping it out Mm -hmm. a lot. We worked on what the ending might be, who the villains might be. We talked all of that through beforehand which was really new for me and really really hard but then when it came to sitting down and writing it I wrote the first like 25,000 words just like lightning because I was in the story and I loved that then I was like that accelerated things however and my editor will laugh at this Finn will laugh at this that then there comes a point where I go yeah but what would they do now Mm. and then all that planning kind of goes away because what I enjoy as a writer is being in the story with them and almost asking them now what are you going to do and then I feel like I'm the first reader of that story so even when I do try and plan and I can see that it has some advantages I still go off yeah and follow my nose a little bit and I think that's captured really well in the escape room just thinking of that process because Again, trying to be very spoiler light here. The reality show has a director who has set up a certain thing and definitely has a vision for what they want the show to be. And then you have your main character who is disrupting that. And it very is true with the way it's edited in reality shows that they do craft a story that the uh, people inside don't realise is beyond their control and how they're going to be portrayed. And having all of that explored is really, really good. And I really felt like all of the characters and their backgrounds and having the contestants in the show, initially I felt, oh, they seem quite broad. But then, of course, that's what you have in a reality show, is that you have very strong personalities. And then having them actually react in subtle ways where it's like, no, they're, they're more than their initial mask and their initial persona, and actually uh, going under the layers of them and then revealing themselves to be more nuanced. Yes, and, and to have more, and to see that re- that person behind that kind of fluff and facade that we often judge people by when we see them on, on shows, that we just take them at face value and we don't really think about what their motivations might be or what's going on in their life. What, what are they trying to run away from by trying to get into TV? It, 
And I think what I wanted to do is represent some characters who looked and sounded like the typical people who want to have a career in TV because you always get a good smattering of those. Then with the premise of The Fortress, which is the reality TV show in the escape room, it was, are you smart enough to unlock its secrets? I wanted it to attract people who thought of themselves as smart and who had through the kind of application process proven themselves to be smart. So they arrive feeling confident that they're going to have to use their intellect. And then, of course, things go very <laughs> well. And, <so. laughs> and when you're developing all these characters and all these layers and all of that, are you very prolific with note taking? And do you have like little subfolders and uh, index cards to keep track of all the different characters? Or do you just try and keep it all in your head? Um, I have just one ring bound notebook, like an A4 ring bound notebook for every book that I write. And, and, and that's what I've always done in my kind of corporate life. And just write notes as they go. And I just date them as I'm writing them that day. So as I'm working on something, so then I can always kind of track back you know, like, oh, what, what was the name of that character I just put in? And what, what were they, where were they coming from? And I can then find it thinking, oh, that was about three weeks ago. And so I, that's how I kind of do it. But they're very, if anyone else read them, they'd probably think, well, this is all nonsense. <laughs> it's not like you can turn that into anything, really. So they are just kind of brain dumps. As I'm writing, I'll maybe write down an idea for something I don't want to forget. So, yeah, I think I'm just in the book and in the workings of it. I don't, do, like I say, huge amounts of planning until I get to the editing stage where then I like to get my post-it notes out and I have a lot of fun with those. But when I'm doing the first draft, I'm just kind of in it with random notes scribbling in this one book that becomes my Bible. And do you like to do a lot of research? Are you research light or are you research heavy? Well, this is one of the things I'm doing very differently with the current book that I'm working on. Because of having kind of two jobs, I haven't feel had enough luxury of time to do as much research as I might have liked in all of my previous books. So I'm trying to do more of that in this one. And so that's really enjoyable. And I put more time aside to do that research. However, with the reality TV one, I mean, kind of speaking to people, friends, family, watching the TV shows, it was quite easy mm. to research that in some ways. And also the one of the kind of story tools as you as you know is a podcast yeah. that's kind of running on about what's happened and I love podcasts and particularly true crime podcasts and so that again was I'd just pick something that was talking about a similar yeah. topic and I'd listen to that and then I'd kind of use that to just give me a little bit of inspiration for what the interviewer might talk yeah. about next so yeah they are I, I always want to make them really authentic I would hate for someone who let's say who'd been on a reality mm. tv show or let's say someone who's been in an escape room I would hate them to read the book and go it's nothing like this when you go escape room so so I, I actually met with um, a lady Claire who designs escape rooms up where I live and she spent a half afternoon with me going through how they do it and all the trickery in the background <laughs> it was wonderful like seeing behind the magician's kind of um, tactics. And she was great. So sometimes you'll have someone who'll just give you that opening into that world that's lovely. And then other bits, you're just taking piecemeal, little bits of inspiration from different places. But I like to research more. I think that's something I'm hungry to do more of. Yeah, I must say, I thought it was very well realised. and uh, There was very well-observed bits with podcasting, certainly. I'm relieved to hear that. <laughs> Uh, again, I don't want to spoil it, but I will just mention, obviously, we mentioned a UK channel in it, and I mm. found that hilarious. I just thought, yeah, they would totally go for this show. 
that's where it would be. Yes. <laughs> so I just thought again, it was just these little observations that really, really, you know, sort of uh, help authenticate the book and really ground it, which I really, really loved. Oh, that's great. Yeah, because a lot of work does go into that and making it kind of real. Mm. And certainly, my editor was very keen on saying, "Look, this this is a story that would be quite unbelievable mm. if we don't execute it really, really well." So having somebody with you that keeps your feet on the ground mm. a bit. And and for instance, he was the one who said about putting the sponsorships into the podcast. And I remember thinking, oh, it feels a bit naff. And, and I, I listened to a few podcasts and I thought, oh, I don't like them anyway. But then as soon as I wrote it and read it back, I was like, oh my goodness, that sounds like a podcast now. So just sometimes having people around you that kind of puncture through your artistic vision and go, yeah, but you need to do this. Otherwise, people aren't going to believe what's going on. You need to make it real. Yeah. And so that kind of help and support, that's invaluable, yeah. I think. No, I thought it was great. And I do want to sort of cover more about plotting, as that seems like a new challenge for you, having the, the ending and stuff. So what does an outline look like for you? Because I know some people who just like, yeah, they have their initial concept and they write and see whether characters create them and they don't really know the ending until they've written it. But if you've now got an ending, have you got a beat by beat of the story? Is it a three act structure? Is it a 12 act structure? Do you have a chapter by chapter summary? How does the outline manifest itself for the escape room? Yeah, I'm a bit more kind of broad. So a mm -hmm. three act structure is kind of where I, I work. And then I will have what I want happening kind of as mm -hmm. the crescendos within each of that. And actually, um, the escape room is split into kind of three sections as well. So you can see that kind of late in the book. And right from the beginning, I was thinking about those three different sections and what might be happening within those. But I didn't know exactly how it was going to end mm. at the beginning. And I remember having a couple of conversations with my husband and one of my oldest friends, Christine, and I was telling them a bit about the story yeah. and most people glaze <laughs> over with But they both got really into it and they came up with a couple of ideas that I thought, I love them. They're really good. Yeah. And so a couple of the twists at the end came from that one's conversation. And so I think it's that thing. I'm As a writer, I, I really, really enjoy indulging my introverted side, getting stuck in the story and being on my own and being quiet. But also I'm quite an extroverted personality. So sometimes where I get my best ideas is when I'm talking to people about the story, I'm talking to people about my ideas, and they suggest their own. And I either think, mm. great, I'm stealing it. Or I think, no, you're wrong. They wouldn't do that. So sometimes every now and then, if I'm feeling a bit stuck, I will kind of bounce it off, trusted others. But anyway, going back to the plotting. So my plotting is quite loose. I don't have chapter by chapter. I, I know who's doing the things that are being done, but I don't know how they're going to get their comeuppance necessarily. I might have a couple of ideas, but they tend to usually turn out to be quite naive ideas that then I find I can't really execute that. And it's a bit ridiculous, really, because once you get into the characters and think about what real people might do, those simplistic endings of how someone might come up against them, be kind of exposed, start to feel a little bit, um, trite, like oh, I've seen it before, is something I saw in a movie once. So I think then challenging yourself to do it a bit more authentically. So I have my overview, and then within that, I allow myself room to just kind of let the story evolve a bit. No, nice. And mm. I think there's a lot of people, I, I'm sure there's a lot of listeners who really enjoy the ideas stage and developing like all the bits of the story. 
But the graft of writing a hundred thousand words or thereabouts and actually getting it all down is where a lot of people can get unstuck. So how do you yeah. discipline yourself to go, right, okay, I've got all these great ideas. Now I've got to get them down and articulate it in the best way possible. And how do you arrange your writing sessions? You've already said you write when you can, and it doesn't really matter where you are. But do you have any particular rituals or any particular way you start a writing session and do you have any particular goal? Like, okay, I'm going to write for a certain amount of time, a certain number of words. How do you craft your writing sessions? Yeah, well, when I'm on uh, the school run days, my um, writing time is kind of limited. So that's mm. a deadline is always helpful, isn't it? And and I usually try and see if I can get to about 2,000 words a day. I like that. I feel like if I've done 2,000 words, I could stop if I wanted to. But if I haven't done 2,000 words, I should use whatever extra time I've still got. So that's yeah. a bit of a measure in my head sure where that number came from probably something I read by another author once but but that's kind of there so over time what I've learned about writing for myself is that I always am not sure what I'm going to write next and that can lead to procrastination that blank page what I've learned over time is I always do write something next I always do I, I I've been fortunate enough, I've never sat at, at my desk or my laptop and then walked away from it and not written a word. But what I tend to do to kind of trick myself into starting that writing is I go back a number of chapters and then I read through those chapters. And then what I find is as I'm reading those chapters, I start, because you can't help it as a writer, editing a little bit and tinkering going, I don't like how that conversation runs. And then as soon as I'm into that, doing a little bit of tinkering, as soon as I get to the blank page, I kind of know what's coming. I'm back in the world with the characters. So I have to get myself back and almost have to take a run up towards it, if that makes sense. And sometimes, so like after Christmas, I had to start right at the beginning and read the whole thing because I thought I can't remember what these people were doing or where they were because I'd had like a fortnight <laughs> off. So sometimes you really have to go back. But normally it's just, you know, half a dozen pages yeah. I'm going back. And with the 2,000 words, because, I mean, I, I'm not a writer, but I certainly remember when doing essays back in school, it was write a paragraph, write how many words is that? Write a is there any kind of software, is there like a countdown that you use or is it just, like, how, how do you chart your, your 2,000 words? I just look at the numbers that I've written that day. Yeah, I do. Sometimes I'll write down in a book what the number of words are when I start and then I can kind of gauge it. But often I'm just looking to see, because it will tell you like word, how many you've done since you started. So it's usually just as rudimentary as that. <laughs> and usually that's at a point where I start feeling frustrated or bored. And I think, I hope I've done my 2000 so I could go out for a walk with the dog. And then I realize I've only done yeah. 700 and I'm like, darn it. <laughs> I mean, mentioning having Christmas off, are there times when you, you know, now five books in, how do you deal with an uninspired period? Yeah, so I always find the middle bit the hardest. So that's when I know I'm going to get those uninspired bits. And, and often it's because there are too mm. many options for where I could take it. And because I write the way I do, which is more evolved, I'm not maybe heading towards a set de destination, that's even harder because you're like, well, I could take it this way or this way or this way. So it's almost like that overwhelming table of choice. Uh, but I have a very consistent way that works for me. I'm a runner. And if I run, then the story will tend to unlock itself. So I put music on, I go out, I think about all sorts of other things, probably for the majority yeah. of the run. And then often in the last kind of 
20 minutes, I'll just think, right, and I'll go into the story. And by the time I'd come back, I have something. And that consistently works for me. And where I've struggled really with writing is when I've been unable to run. So I broke my toe in September, <laughs> my little toe. So I couldn't run for a good few months, like six or eight weeks. Um, and I found that quite debilitating then. Because when I did have those moments, I'd have to go for longer and longer walks with the dog to get the same. And I think, like you said about the psychology, I think there's something about when your body's moving at pace, your mind's moving at pace. And for me, that kind of works. A thing I heard about long ago, and again, I have no scientific background, so this is just, yeah, the internet told me. But alpha waves? Is that a, a thing in the brain that, oh, like, yeah. that when you've got a repetitive action that a lot of the the brain is focused on doing something that it knows how to do and it's a lot of the unconscious. So walking a familiar yes. route, brushing your teeth, having a shower, it allows the problem-solving yes. part of the brain to go, well, we're not doing anything because we're not lost. We know, you know what parts of the body we need to clean and if we're doing dishes or just doing a repetitive chore and it allows to fix problems that in other parts of our life which is why people get ideas when they're in the shower when they're doing a chores and when they're going for a walk yeah. is that an actual recognized thing it is yeah it's like the brain's kind mm. of freewheeling a little bit and often very creative people will say their best ideas will come in the shower or they'll come just those moments where you're just falling asleep or just waking up where the brain is really 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 relaxed and I think a lot of that is to do with not having a huge amount of stress hormones. So if you are worried about the fact you don't know what to write, then that anxiety interferes with your ability to be creative. It interferes with how the brain works because the brain just goes into this process of how do we escape the anxiety? How do we escape the threat? As opposed to what amazing ideas might I have? Now, walking, swimming, cycling, running, they are all stress releasing because they take cortisol, which is our stress hormone, out of our system. So that's probably why it's usually the end of my runs where I get the most inspiration, because by that point, my body's kind of reset itself. My brain's relaxed. It's getting a bit tired. Like you say, it's going through some repetitive motion and it allows that kind of creativity to kick in. Yeah. So there's there's lots of factors that feed into that. We don't fully understand how it all works yet. But no, that's because I've discussed it with a few writers and I've always quantified it with a pinch of salt of going like, I don't know where I learned this. But now like talking to a psychologist and saying, yes, there is science behind that. I feel like, okay, <laughs> I know I've spoken to professionals. So that's good. I can tick that off. <laughs> I, I'm not talking complete bullshit. Uh, that's great. And, and there's one more thing that I think I learned a long time ago, just doing a writing class, which was if you're really, really stuck, put a timer on for five minutes and write anything. Just write until the timer goes off. And you'll write complete dross as you're writing, inspiration will come. And I do find that does work as well. So that's almost, I suppose that's a little bit like taking the run up. It's how, how to trick yourself into getting into the writing. That is a, one of my very first guests, Harriet Klein, had the, a similar thing where she would just start writing dross and just be like, just, just get to the keyboard and just start typing. And then... But don't worry about it. And then about 10 minutes in, yeah, the, the brain's warmed up. It's like the engine's running. And a sci-fi author that we've also had on, Tade Thompson, he literally rolls out of bed and starts typing. He just, before he has a coffee, while he's still in that fugue dream state, it's just like, okay, let's just write stuff. We can edit it later, but let's just see what the unconscious brain is sort of thinking. That's it. And I think what, 
what we also know about the brain, which is really cool stuff, and I don't fully understand this field, but it's always going in the background. So I don't know whether you've had one of those experiences in life where you've had a kind of revelation where you suddenly thought, oh my goodness, I know what's going on here. Like there might be some things that have happened in your personal life or maybe in your professional life where there's some kind of mystery there that you haven't even spotted. And then one day your brain goes, right, I've been collecting some clues here. So I'm just going to lay these out for you because I think something's occurring. And you get that kind of moment of clarity where you go, oh my goodness. And that's because it's always taking information in. It doesn't always tell our conscious brain, but it's always kind of assimilating information. And that's just (laughs) really cool. Yeah, I'm an avid walker. And yeah, it's it's definitely where the, the pieces come together. Yes, yeah. I know we've mentioned stress and anxiety in writing and struggling in the middle. Uh, imposter syndrome, very uh, common thing. Is it something that you've had a lot of experience in? Is there a period with maybe each writing project where you have really strong doubts and uh, how do you get through it? Yeah, I think on a broad level, if you met me in the street and said, oh, hi, Leona, what do you do? I'd say I'm a psychologist. And then my husband would go, and author (laughs) on the large scale yes that imposter syndrome is present um and there's that element of i think when you do something like writing there's always a new bar so you know 10 years ago my biggest dream was to have a single book published if that had happened to me my life would have been set but then of course once you get a first book published then you're like well could i do a second well could it sell well well, you know, could I get a TV deal out of it? <laughs> and so there's always another bar. So you're always chasing, you're always in the chasing pack. And because of that, it keeps you in this perpetual state of, I don't think I'm good enough. I don't think I can do this. And then occasionally, well, went out for dinner the other night with some of my husband's colleagues. And I said to the lady, oh, I'm working really hard on my writing. I'm doing lots more research at the moment. And she said, well, how much better could you get? You've got five books out. And it was one of those moments where I'm like, well, well of course I could get, better. I could get better at the quality of the writing. I could make it more successful in terms of my living. But but just then remembering that somebody going, but you've published five books. Don't be talking about how you're having to really try hard. There's people who dream of one book and haven't had that. And it was a bit of a moment of, oh, actually, yeah. But But that's imposter syndrome. That's just that I don't really feel like I'm a writer. Um, and then on a professional side, I kind of understand where all of those things are coming from. And a lot of imposter, well, most of us get imposter syndrome at the beginning of a new job anyway. So we all know what it feels like because your first six to eight, 12 months, you feel like an imposter and then it kind of beds in. Where it becomes this kind of syndrome is where it lingers around for a bit longer. And I, I can completely see where mine comes from because I'm the eldest of three sisters. And often imposter syndrome comes from messages in your childhood. So I was the eldest, so I did all the exams first. So I was the kind of intellectual one. I was the academic one. And then my sisters were far more creative in what they did and more fashionable and more outgoing and all those things. And I was the studious one. And then when it came to being the writer, there's that little voice in my head going, yeah, but you're not the creative one. This shouldn't be you. That, like, that's deep set stuff, isn't it? But yeah, sorry, to go back to, does it affect my actual writing? Um, I managed to force it out. And I think I'm helped by the fact I understand it as a phenomena, as a psychologist. And I understand it's just an anxiety that doesn't really do anything useful. So I feel it. 
I know it's there. And then I have to actively park it and just get on with it anyway. Yeah. Nice. And uh, going on to your editing now, we've mentioned before that you sort of you go back and you'll tinker a bit, you know, have the run up before a writing session and go back uh, a few chapters. Uh, when you've actually finished first draft, do you then go back and read the whole thing or do you give it to someone to get a second opinion before you start like a, a big rewrite? I always have loved this idea of giving it to people for a second opinion. And I did that very well. I still do it to a degree. Um, but what I tend to find is that people just come back and go, yeah, I really liked it. It was really good. And you go, no, I want to know chapter by chapter what worked and what didn't, which characters you like. And actually, I want you to edit this book for me. And of course, people aren't going to do that because they're reading it for enjoyment. <laughs> so what I do, so I love working with my editor and getting the structural edits back, although it takes me 24 hours. So I have to open that email, read the feedback, then probably have some wine. <laughs> And then go to sleep. And then I wake up the next day and think, right, let's get at it then. But that first read through is always quite jarring when you're told what doesn't work or what needs more work. Because I always think it's when you send your first draft out or even your final book, it's akin to taking yeah. your baby out for the first time. Yeah. And then if someone goes, oh, its nose yeah. is a bit funny. Yeah. It's like, why can't you just say it's perfect? No notes. And then it become a bestseller. That's all I want. Quite simple. Yes, I laugh at myself because every time I send a draft of a book off, I kind of have these imaginings of my editor just ringing me like 48 hours later and going, this is the best thing I've ever read. Of course, that person wouldn't be doing their job. And of course, it's not the best thing anyone's ever read. It's a first draft. So, But you can always have that kind of desire. But then personally, what I like to do when it comes to then re-looking at the book, like I say, I get my post-it notes out. So one of my favorite parts of editing is I write a chapter on each post-it note. So just the essence of each chapter on a post-it note. And then I just stick them on my kitchen table. And then I start moving things around and just thinking about how the story can have more suspense or more tension um, and where I need more detail in. And so that becomes a very kind of productive physical process rather than a mental process. Yeah, because it definitely is like uh, flashback scenes in... Um... In the escape room. Yes, in the, in the escape show. Mention the book, name the book. Um, <laughs> one thing that I found really funny after reading it and loving it and uh, giving it to my wife was uh, there's an early scene with a child and a postman. Yes. And she was like, oh, what does this mean? And I'd forgotten it. And I was like, oh, my God. And my wife was just really confused. I was like, that makes so much sense. Oh, my God, that was seeded right at the beginning and it's just like oh my that's <laughs> such a good stuff and my wife is like okay i'm intrigued <laughs> about this book now because i've just read it and you're going nuts over a scene that currently doesn't make sense i was like oh it will oh it will it will it will come into its own yeah so yeah and with the podcast interviews taking place at a time after the main events, I can see how, yeah, sort of, so that wasn't initially the structure. It was more linear. Yeah. The opening chapter, that first chapter, I did write that as one of my earliest chapters. And I just liked that kind of imagery of it. So it inspired me and I wrote that chapter and then it was a case of, well, where is this going to fit? How is this going to fit? And then, and then that kind of worked its way through. Um, but yeah, the podcast, deciding what the podcast would cover, when the podcast would come in, because it moves the story forward a little bit. When I needed to clarify something or explain something, 
the podcaster was great for that kind of thing. Um, and just also building up a bit of mystery within some of the questions that were being asked there and some of Bonnie's answers within that. So it was really fun thing to play. And this is the weird thing about the escape room is that I, I love that you and your <laughs> wife have really loved it. And that's nice. I have had some people say to me, oh, I had to get up in the late in the night and put the landing light on because it was scaring me. And then I feel really, I'm like, oh, to me, it feels like a really light, mm. fun book because of all the puzzles that are in it. All of the kind of escape roomy challenges. And I spent mm. ages designing those. And so it feels like a book of puzzles. And then I have to remind myself that it is actually a crime thriller and, you know, it gets a bit dark there. <laughs> so. And obviously, you know, you have your Dr. Bloom books and this is, you know, separate to that franchise. It's different, but it, the choice to have a pen name for this, was that your decision? Was that something that was recommended to you? Yes. Yes. It was requested, I suppose, would be the nice way to say it. They said, how would you feel about doing it under a separate name? Because it is a bit different. And I, um, fortuitously, I just got married. Right. And, and so my husband is Smithson. And so, well, I wasn't taking his name in real life. So I thought I could maybe yeah. put it on a book for him. Oh. So he, he's rather chuffed that his name is on a book. Um, yeah, I think, you know, within that kind of mm. business side of publishing, really, the idea of, oh, you can have a series and then maybe you can have another one or even like mm. some authors have multiple channels where they're very different. I know a few crime thriller authors who also write kind of romance and that kind of So, you know, there is that, that desire, I suppose, in writers to be able to write other things. And what's lovely is that my publishers, Transworld, have said, you know, we, we want you to have multiple ways to express your writing. So this is opening up a new avenue and hopefully I'll go back and do some more bloom at some point moment. This is just really lovely to be dealing with completely new characters, really new situation. Um, and it's challenging me. It's harder than doing the bloom books. And there's definitely with the ending again, treading lightly <laughs> possibility to see characters again. Yes. Is that, I mean, it works great as a standalone, but yeah. Is there any thought, have you had any discussions, any sort of pie-in-the-sky ideas of maybe revisiting? No, I haven't. But that's interesting. When my sister read the first draft, she was like, well, I can see what's going to be coming in the follow-up. And I was like, oh, no, the next book isn't a follow-up. And I think she was quite taken aback with that. But I always remember, so my my English teacher back when I was at school, Ken Lowe, I remember him saying the books that tie everything up at the end are forgettable. And the books where you're left as a reader feeling a little bit frustrated with unanswered questions are the ones that you will keep going back to and keep revisiting. And that really, really stuck with me. And I really like leaving people with that feeling of, I wonder what happens now? Because I think that's what life's like, isn't it? You know, when we face drama in life and we come across interesting people in life and then they go away and you think, oh, what ever happened to that? And that's quite a natural human curiosity. I like to just leave that. It does give us a chance to go back <laughs> if we want to. And because you've written a lot in a series, was there a sense of relief of, oh, I got that done. I kind of got that out of my system. Or was it grief of like, oh, that was a fun side project, but now, now it's over. Because I, I feel that there's a mix you know, and sometimes it can lean heavily into one way or the other, depending on your workflow. And obviously, you've got a second job as a psychologist, so you're know, fitting in the writing, getting it done, getting it, okay, that's all signed off, the proofs are out, it's going to go to the printers. Is that like, oh, great, that's done, or, oh, 
I'm, I'm not working on that project anymore. Uh, do you do you tend to lean one way or the other? Oh yeah, yeah. I feel a bit bereft when it goes away. I, I must admit that I get such a lot of intrinsic joy out of writing, and even on those days where it's hard to get into it, as soon as I'm in it, I don't want to leave it. I don't want to walk away from it, and it's quite intoxicating. So when a book is done, I kind of feel a bit lost. It's a bit like, it reminds me of doing exams as a kid where you always look forward to the end of it and it being over. And then that day it's over, you don't kind of know what to do with yourself. And it's, it's, it's what did I used to do before I was revising. And this is a similar thing. I find the days are just too big and nothing to occupy that creative desire that I have. And so I will just roll into writing something else. So with the, the book I'm writing at the moment, by the time the publishers came back and said, oh, yeah, we like this idea for the second book. Go ahead. Start writing it. I think I was already <laughs> 30,000 words in. I was like, okay, because I was just like, I like this idea. So I'm just going to start. Mm. And if it had not got mm. aching up, I would have, you know, parked it for later, probably. So the one you're working on at the moment, the shame book is a L.D. Smithson. Here's L.D. Yes, yes. Nice. Yeah. So, so that's another standalone. So new characters, new kind of situation that they nice. are facing. That's excellent. Yeah. Well, um, I've just got my last two questions, I think. I think we've covered like so much ground today. It's like, Leona, it's great. Thank you. Been really good. Yeah, good. Um, now, it's my belief that <laughs> writers continue to grow and develop their writing with each story that they write. Was there anything in particular that you learned through the escape room? that you're now applying to the shame-based novel? Yes, I think it is that actually spending more time at the beginning really thinking about the story I'm trying to tell. And that was the kind of lesson I learned with my editor, Finn, where he wanted to know more about, well, who are these people and where are they coming from and why have they gone on this show? And, and so actually spending more time really thinking through that, I repeated that again because... My characters are more rounded when I arrive in the story. And for me as a writer that's writing from the point of view of what might they do next, that has really helped me. And, and I can see already that the writing is getting better. And that's lovely yeah. when you see that happening because you're always yeah. just trying to be better each time, I think. Um, so, yes, definitely that. Spending more time at the beginning, thinking it through, and then allowing myself freedom to evolve away from that when I get into it. And was there one piece of advice that you return to when you're writing, that one thing that motivates you through everything that you've done? Yeah, and it's not from a writer, it's from a psychologist. So there's a lady, Carol Dweck, out in America, professor of psychology, who discusses this whole idea of the growth mindset. So the fact that we're not born with particular skills or talents as such, we learn everything as we go. And what this means is that even if you want to become an author, but you've never written anything, you can become an author if you're willing yeah. to put the time and the effort in. It might take you 10 years. It might take 20 years, but you can do it if you're willing to put the time and the effort in. It's all about time and effort. And that has really helped me along the way because a lot of people at the beginning, when I started writing, were very supportive, but there was a mm. bit of a, all right, like eyebrow raising, this is all a bit silly. And I think if you don't have that sense of, well, even if I just get better at it, don't have to be the best author in the world. I don't have to, you know, meet some metric for what it means to be a writer. If I enjoy writing and keep writing, yeah. I'll just get better at it. And then what will happen? That kind of kept me 
motivated yeah. and going. No, that's great. Well, that's all we have time for this week. But LD Smith, then, thank you very much for being my guest. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure, Tom. Thank you. And thank you to you and your wife. <laughs> I'll let her know. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> And that's Leona, L.D. Smithson, telling you that if you put in the time and the effort, you can achieve what you want to achieve. Great words from a great lady. And you should now go buy her book, because if I didn't rave about it enough during that interview, please check it out as soon as possible. It really is phenomenal. Uh, first week sales are always the best for the algorithm, and I promise it's worth it. I say no to so many authors and books because I want to bring you the best. Trust me, Leona is the best enough said. Well, almost enough said. You should go and look at her up. You can find her details about her books and her socials on her website, leonadeacon.co.uk. I'll also have the link in the show notes and Google. Uh, now, a little personal update for me. I uh, don't like going into these things, but I'm going to start some new medical treatment soon. So hopefully, for me, better in the long term but highly disruptive in the short term. So I'm going to be on a little hiatus, unfortunately. However, I hope to be back and bring you more podcast episodes by the summer. Um, also, my wife has gone and had a nasty head injury uh, because we both like spending all of our money on private healthcare, apparently. Um, so wish us both well and look after yourself better than a Pepperdine can and keep writing until the world ends. Time can never be your trusted friend or your sworn ally. No, it's the harshest mistress of all. And life is just a chain of moments spent, a thousand hellos and Maybe a love like ours can leave out its call. I will keep you near until the world is Tides never 